Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. He's been called a visionary, forward-thinking leader. From Los Angeles to DC, from Paris to New York, and now Baltimore, Sammy Hoy has been a force in arts education. Today, as president of the Maryland Institute College of Art, he is a believer that art and artists can be change makers in our society. Sammy Hoy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Absolutely. So I want to... Um, kind of talk about a really broad topic first. I've heard you talk about the power of arts as a change agent in society. How do you feel like the arts can truly make a difference? Great question. Many people love experiencing arts and love participating in arts, but they tend to have a very narrow idea about art, thinking of as being a you know, recreational, um, dispensable activity in life. Mm -hmm. uh, but as a matter of fact, I think arts and cultural expressions are really powerful expression of humanity. And in society, it is a really important tool for social, cultural, technological, and innovation advancement. Uh, so I think MICA and our community at MICA are thinking deeply about how to broaden people's understanding of the true power of art and design, and also how to prepare the next generations of artists and designers and arts educators who actually can uh, help broaden that understanding as well. So for example, if you think about arts, most people think about you know painting, drawing, mm -hmm. museums, uh, maybe a magazine, poster design. But if you really think about um, an iPhone, think about the four things that make um, an iPhone really powerful and so attractive. One is technology, uh, one's the design, mm -hmm. one is actually the user experience of how to navigate through the applications, mm -hmm. and then is the marketing. Now, three out of those four things, the user experience, the design, and the marketing are all in the creative field. Mm -hmm. So if you really uh, think about arts and culture in that manner, you can see it actually has really a widespread application and power in a way that people tend to not see it. So it's kind of like a very invisible superpower uh -huh. that people don't recognize. And I think we are trying to um, reveal, you know, that, that power to everyone. Uh -huh. And on, on a community building, um, now there's a movement called creative place making, which is a, how do you use place-based art and cultural expression to really lift underserved um, community and mm -hmm. give kind of power to the people and power of imagination of how to move communities along. And I think that is something Mike is very interested in um, uh, building into our curriculum. Mm -hmm. I want to go back um, sort of in the past for you. Arts have really always been a part of your life. Was your family really involved in the arts when you were growing up? Somewhat, yes. My father had a business, a self-started business in Chinese furniture, import-export, mm -hmm. and some kind of um, kind of objects, um, I guess, trading. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up with beautiful objects at home and also in his shop. So I would say uh, tangentially, I'd always been influenced by aesthetics. But none of my family members had gone into the arts, and I think they all, my parents look at the arts more as a kind of pragmatic matter versus mm -hmm. um an aesthetic matter. Mm -hmm. And so I would say I was influenced by it, but I think I'm really one of my own uh, family members who have pursued it as a, as a life path. Mm -hmm. And your life path has taken quite a few turns. You have a degree in psychology and French. You have a law degree. Tell me a little bit about how, what led you into arts education? 
Yeah, I would say it was a very fortunate early life crisis, as they call it. Uh, I have a very uh, traditional upbringing, as I um, just described to you. A wonderful, loving family and very good you know, values of, of everyone. But arts were just not one of those things you would pursue for vocation or for life's sake. And so uh, I internalized um, that belief. So when I went uh, to school, I um, basically had liberal arts undergraduate mm -hmm. that I loved. And then when I went to graduate school, I pursued a law degree, which in my mind was very uh, practical. Sure. And then when I was in law school, I realized that while intellectually I was extremely stimulated, uh, spiritually I wasn't fulfilled as a human being. Mm -hmm. um, so I question then um, if I pursue something so practical and find my bliss, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps I should just not think about practicality and pursue <laughs> uh, really what I loved. And I uh, looked back in my life and saw that art was always there. Mm -hmm. So basically, I finished law school, got my license to practice and promptly retired as an attorney <laughs> and went back to art school. And it was in art school that I discovered, I stumbled into administration as a kind of work-study um person, actually. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that uh, wonderful synergy of being um, in the creative field, but at the same time, uh, the problem solution of the art, the analytical work, and kind of strategic you know, planning, etc. And also my fundamental belief in education being a powerful pathway for people to find themselves mm -hmm. and to uh, make contributions and also to advance in life. So the pathway of actually art education, administration, and program shaping became uh, my life path. Mm -hmm. And so re I re-stumbled upon it. Was there like a light bulb moment that you thought, this is it? This is, like was Yeah, absolutely. I, I could go back and thought of a light bulb moment, uh, definitely. I would say that when I was in art school, again, I did um, the art administration work really as a work study, trading for tuition in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and then afterwards, um, for two to three years, I continued that path. And until I was very lucky, when I was very young, I was sent away by my alma mater and also the first school I worked for, Parsons School of Design, mm -hmm. uh, to Paris to head its Hi. foreign campus. It was a tiny, tiny little, you know, campus in France, but it was a wonderful experience. So I was thrown into a educational leadership position. And I think that was my light bulb moment when um, I had the opportunity to really think about the, the programming for the whole little campus that we had and to deal with everything related to it. Then I saw that all my skills um, uh, set from law school to my art training to my, um, I guess, somebody in a Chinese American, mm -hmm. the, the Chinese background in believing that Confucius path of you know, education as being a way, again, for advancement mm -hmm. really all came together beautifully. And then I I thought, oh, you know, this is something I could do for the rest of my life. And again, I've been very fortunate that opportunities kept coming that I could do it mm -hmm. um, up to now, um, you know, which has been several decades. Mm -hmm. so. How much has the curriculum at art school changed since you went to where we are today? I mean, it seems revolutionarily different. Yeah, just like technology that has kind of escalated in its evolution, art school education really has um, expanded in its possibility and practice um, tremendously over the last few decades. Mm -hmm. I would say for... Um, almost a century, there was not that much movement in art education. So if you think about the 20th century, uh, it was still about um, training artists and, you know, designers and art educators that are kind of would stay close to their disciplines in sure. a way. Yeah, so uh, painters would become painters, maybe art teachers and designers would do, you know, to design practice. But over the last um, maybe 
two decades or so, the especially in this new um, kind of millennium, the rapid evolution in technology, mm-hmm. uh, the advancement of the gig economy, and also the breaking down of barriers among different fields really have opened up the possibilities uh, greatly for artists and designers now. Uh, there was a very interesting two, uh, 2016 study by the National Endowment of the Arts called um, Arts Connect. It described the current working conditions and also the foreseeable future for mm-hmm. uh, artists and, and designers. And basically, uh, it paints accurately a picture of creatives nowadays working with technology, working across fields, working in fields that are traditionally not thought of in kind of uh, the arts and design arena mm-hmm. and also in becoming increasingly entrepreneurial and also uh, very promisingly that the creative workforce is um, becoming uh, bigger and more diverse and more productive. So all those um, have to kind of spur new thinking and new practices in education, art and design education. And then the report also pointed out that the uh, education training system is not keeping pace with it. And that gives innovative schools like MICA really the opportunity uh, to innovate and in a way lead the way. And that's what we're trying to do. You mentioned entrepreneurship. How much is that such a huge part of what you're teaching students now? Because it feels like artists were kind of the original entrepreneurs. You are absolutely right. I think artists and designers are the original entrepreneurs because they really have to learn how to communicate their passion, their ideas to, you know, gallery owners or, you know, partners and people who provide resources, figure mm-hmm. out how to display their work or, um, you know, fund their projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, interesting thing is that artists and design traditionally have not thought of themselves as entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, because of the older way of looking at things, there is almost this uh, reticence about participating fully in commerce and in the world because they, there, is, there was a old school belief that if you're outside of um, uh, the world, you could actually critique and the world and you can actually do more independent work. But I think uh, any kind of millennials or Gen Z uh, young people will, um, will say now that there's really not that kind of barrier anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the younger generation is very bold and comfortable by being in the world and making a difference and be critical at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of that, entrepreneurship is really important to art and design um, education training. But I would say it's really not a standard part of art and design education yet. And Mike is changing that. Actually, yesterday, we just announced this $5 million gift from the Redcliffe Foundation wow. uh, to help us establish a, a center for creative entrepreneurship at Micah Mm -hmm. uh, that allow us to take a whole college approach to creative entrepreneurship. So we will not only have our annual upstock competition that fund our graduates in creative businesses, we are now starting to uh, build it into the curriculum. So Mm -hmm. students coming in can self-identify as creative entrepreneurs and have a not only a curriculum, but cohort of fellow entrepreneurial students and um, have live, learn, you know, communities will be uh, inviting in entrepreneurs and residents at MICA. And partly, uh, we also are very mindful that however we support uh, MICA students, we also need to support citizens and creatives in the city Mm -hmm. that are not affiliated with MICA. So part of the funding also supports an existing program at MICA called the Baltimore Creatives Acceleration Network Mm -hmm. uh, that provide uh, entrepreneurial support to creatives without requiring an affiliation with MICA. Mm -hmm. And that's all through the neighborhoods. Actually, the Pratt Library is the partner to Beacon. This is that. Yeah, so we are very excited about that. So, and also at MICA, we really think of entrepreneurship not uh, 
necessarily just about business, but it's also about how to make one's passion come alive in a compelling way and getting other people signed on to help that passion be meaningful others. So for us, the creative business entrepreneurship and socialpreneurship are together and the way that we're educating artists and designers. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Visit the Central Library's new thought-provoking exhibit, Undesign the Red Line, an interactive experience that invites participants to learn the history, interact with the stories, and invent a new future by undoing structural inequities. November 1st through January 31st at the Pratt Central Library. More details at prattlibrary.org. You touched a little bit on how Micah's making this impact within the city of Baltimore. I was touched by um, your mission, which is to empower students to forge creative, purposeful lives and careers in a diverse and changing world. Thrive with Baltimore, make the world we imagine. Why was that piece about thriving with Baltimore so important to put in that mission statement? Well, first of all, it's very important to the MICA community. Mm -hmm. uh, I came to MICA as a new president in summer of 2014, and I waited two years before working with our community, meaning our faculty, students, trustees, and staff, to, um, in a way, rearticulate our mission and vision to state our contemporary purpose so that we have actually two years to really discover together what are the um, most important things mm -hmm. to people on campus. And so we posed a number of questions, and one of the questions was, what do you really care about? What do you feel that Micah must kind of state in a way we haven't embraced or articulated before? And one thing that kept coming again and again is like our roots in Baltimore, mm -hmm. our coexistence with Baltimore, and how can Micah help make Baltimore a better place as Baltimore makes Micah a better place? Mm -hmm. And so because of that, we decided it was time in our previous uh, mission, Baltimore didn't exist in the mission at sure. all. So this one, we refilled that mission, Baltimore has to be there. And Thrive With was also something we considered very carefully. We didn't say like elevate, we didn't say strengthen, we said Thrive With because in our mind, any equitable relationship has to be a 50-50 relationship. Sure. So um, yeah, so, so we chose that word very carefully. And then we positioned that in between our first part of our mission statement, which is about educational mission, how we empower students in a mm -hmm. diverse and changing world. And then with making the world we imagine, because we also wanted Baltimore to be, in a way, our rooted commitment locally, but it is not one that would limit also our aspiration globally to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, we want to create that kind of interchange and exchange between Baltimore and the world. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of our most amazing, you know, um, alums now is Amy Sherrod, you of know, course. who also, you yes. know, taught at MICA when, when she, and when she came to Baltimore from somewhere else, her formative years as an artist, as a student, as a, um, was really, in, was in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And so while she was here, she made incredibly powerful, you know, paintings and portraitures. But then she took that and now she's based in Brooklyn, but still with a very strong presence in, in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. You see her actually in Baltimore all the time. Yes. Um, that is kind of a very good example about Thrive with Baltimore, make the world imagine. You know, I think Micah would uh, support that kind of talent mm -hmm. uh, who actually would take the Baltimore spirit in a way and take it worldwide. Mm -hmm. Speaking on the smaller scale, how do you feel like Micah has impacted just the neighborhood where the school sits? Yeah, really uh, good question. Um, so Micah is a small, small college. Mm -hmm. We are, you know, 2,100 uh, degree students with another uh, maybe 5,000 or so um, open to continued education community-based, uh, you know, 
student body, we are very small as a college. So we have to be mindful as to how do we make a difference uh, with very serious consideration of our means and also our core expertise as a art and design college. But we are a business operation of some scale. Um, so with that in mind, I would say MICA actually uh, has outsized um, influence and impact in our neighborhood and also in the city. So I'll give you some example to answer your question more directly. Within the um, Bolt, Bolton Hill and Station North area mm-hmm. around MICA uh, campus where we have the campus safety We've been able to work with our neighbors in a way that we actually have reduced our crime rate in the wow. uh, in the neighborhood by about half uh, between um, 2015 and 2019 wow. as, as the city's crime rate actually has risen. Mm-hmm. And we've done it in a way that's very friendly, that's very welcome by our neighbors, by our students. So that's one way about uh, people just don't normally think about, oh, an art school has actually an sure. impact on you know, safety, mm-hmm. but but we do. Another example is the um, kind of Baltimore, Beacon, you know, Baltimore yes, Creative Association Network that I talked about before. As we are mindful about making sure that our graduates have the biggest option and most opportunities as they in school and also graduate, mm-hmm. we also are mindful to make sure we are not inadvertently uh, structuring that kind of privileged pathway to prosperity mm-hmm. uh, that actually we share and make uh, create some equitable access and pathway for anyone in the city who call themselves artists who actually want to participate in a creative economy to be able to receive, again, free entrepreneurial support. So then we are both supporting our students and faculty, but we are also mindful about how to extend that um, that kind of support to anyone you know in the city as well. Um, so I think it's uh, that kind of activities that I think make Mike a, um, a trusted partner, like Pratt is an extreme trusted partner in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that kind of uh, just mindful about equal exchange and equitable access. Mm-hmm. You mentioned equity. Um, it was about a year or more ago that you put out a really strong statement about the history of MICA and some of the more racist things that had happened at the college. Why was that so important to make that statement so bold? Yeah, that statement, I think, was issued on February 21st, 2019. Mm-hmm. And it was a date with some historical significance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what happened was that it was the right time for Micah to make a statement, but we we're looking at the right opportunity and a very powerful student exhibition that called attention to Micah's racist past happened at that time. Mm-hmm. So then I consulted with our board of trustees and um, senior team, uh, you know, colleagues and said, no, this is the right time to do that. So yeah. we issued a statement. Um, so a little bit of background. Today's MICA has fully embraced diversity, equity, inclusion, and globalization. And we actually have a code word on campus called DEIG. Mm-hmm. So um, so DEIG is like on everyone's mind at, at, on campus nowadays. And, um, and we see diversity as the fundamental strength of the college and a transformative pathway for us. Mm-hmm. But many institutions in this country and in Baltimore, they have very long history. And MICA has a very long history. We were founded in 1826. Mm-hmm. We're celebrating our 20th, uh, no, 200th birthday in uh, 2026. Um, we had racism in our past. Of course. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, that's yeah, the and, and so, States, yeah, and, so. that's the past of the United States, exactly. So for us, it was one of the key element was actually a 59-year color line admissions policy mm-hmm. that lasted until 1954 that basically excluded uh, talent for no other reason than the color of the skin. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the student, um, Dion Moses, who was terrific, um, you know, artist and, and journalist, she actually created in 
spring 2019, around the time the Micah's apology came out, um, a exhibition that recall into that that history. Mm-hmm. And um, so in collaboration with Dayan, we actually issue that statement. So she staged a demonstration. Mm-hmm. And then during the demonstration, the college actually issued that um, declaration of apology. Mm-hmm. And everything we do, we try to do it collaboratively. Sure. And we really respected her as an artist, as an activist. And she really respected the partnership with the school in a way to make the declaration, you know, as powerful, you know, as possible. And the reception actually was surprisingly positive, you mm-hmm. know, giving uh, that was by an apology. Mm-hmm. Uh, people on campus, especially those members of, of color, were very touched by it and really appreciated the institutional acknowledgement of that past. Uh, and surprisingly enough, uh, not a lot of cultural institutions or art schools have actually made that declaration. Sure. So we also received a fair amount of uh, acknowledgement for our peer institutions. Mm-hmm. And so so that was good. But as I mentioned at the time of the declaration, an apology was only an apology, it's a statement. So what made it uh, really meaningful, it's really about Micah's pledge to going forward to continue to ensure that the DEIG journey is as genuine, as impactful as possible, and that that really is the uh, substance of the apology. It's like we look back to our past, we know who we are today, and we will all work together towards a better future. Mm -hmm. Have there been any other institutions or art schools that have since done it, or are you guys still kind of... Not that I'm aware of, Mm -hmm. not that I'm aware of, but I'm sure probably one or two has done it. But we did generate a fair amount of media attention around that at that time because it's one of their rare instances that it happened. Well, it's a big step forward, that's for sure. It's a good step forward. Yes, it's a great step forward. Don't pay to download your favorite e-books and e-audiobooks. You can do it for free at the Pratt Library. Access some of the most in-demand titles today. You can put away your credit card. All you need is a Pratt Library card. More information on how to access our e-library at prattlibrary.org. I want to get back um, to talking about Baltimore a little, because you did live in D.C. for some time. So I'm interested in what you thought of Baltimore when you lived in D.C. and how that has changed. I lived in D.C. for a while, too, so that's why I asked that question. Yes, exactly. I think I would say that no one really could understand Baltimore without being in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. When I was in D.C., I actually did site visits for uh, very different foundations or um, the Maryland State Art Council. And I came to Baltimore a number of times to you know, visit nonprofits. And I was always very impressed by uh, the vibrancy about the arts in Baltimore, the spirit of innovation in terms of nonprofits practice in Baltimore. But to be truthful, that was some years ago, living in D.C., I saw Baltimore as an output post of DC and yeah 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 but I think no no exactly so so and then I I, when I came to settle in Baltimore in 2014 just as you said it's nowhere close and Baltimore is really a wonderful place you know in its own right not affiliated or reflecting any other place it has this um, really authentic gritty spirit Um, you know it has this problem but it also has really fantastic um, you know neighborhoods and people and a lot of strengths that it's not easy for people to um, 
to, to know. And I always like to say, uh, again, not, not by saying that Baltimore can, and the city can compare. Los Angeles, where I was in before coming to Baltimore, I was there for 14 years before returning to the East Coast. Uh, it's kind of like that kind of city too. If you look from the outside, that's a crazy city with like car problems. Sure. But once you live there, you really know how wonderful, you know, it could be. And mm-hmm. it's, it's the same thing. I think Baltimore, you have to be in Baltimore to fully appreciate Baltimore. Is there something about the art scene in Baltimore? Like, I just feel like arts are thriving so much in this city. And you see it in every corner of the city. Gorgeous murals that pop up out of nowhere, it seems. Yeah, I think uh, Baltimore is one of the most vibrant kind of art city in the country and in the world. And I think people who are here really appreciate it. But it is a, a little bit of a, almost a, a, an underground asset. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it's not yet, um, say, part of the city's um, urban development strategy. It's not yet something people come to realize we have to uh, really invest in to make Baltimore, in a way, a mecca of creativity and artistic innovation that can actually propel other kind of innovation, you know, in the city. And I think that's one thing that actually Micah and I are trying to, um, you know, do here is to lift up the understanding and the profile of the arts and and creating a kind of a a network of partnerships to help uh, make Baltimore a mecca for um, artistic creativity and innovation uh, where arts can drive other innovation. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about city leadership. We are going to go into a mayor's race in 2020. What kind of promises are you hoping to see from leadership in Baltimore as it relates to the arts community? I hope that the new leadership would be able to imagine a compelling and inclusive vision of the city mm-hmm. uh, that definitely provide opportunities to the haves and haves not, but also consider really all the assets, both invisible and visible um, right now. And certainly the arts is a very powerful and semi-visible you know, assets of the city that I hope that any new leadership coming in would recognize that we, we should um, help to, in a way, leverage, both support and leverage uh, for the wellness of the city. And so I, um, both um, um, Mayor Young and also um, former Mayor uh, Pugh have been supportive of BCAN. Um, mm-hmm. um, and we hope that actually um, initiative like BCAN and, you know, and BMA has a very bold agenda as well mm-hmm. you know, regarding the arts um, in the area. And so there's Walters and uh, other um, both big institutions institutions and small grassroots, you know, nonprofits uh, within the arts. And I hope that the city can rework with us um, in moving that agenda forward. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the mission of MICA and thriving with Baltimore, I think one of the key things that I've seen you guys do is really interesting outreach that's really embedded in different communities like the uh, MICA Community Arts Building. Talk to me a little bit about that and why it was so important to have students in that community working with the community. Yeah, it's funny because I think this is how education has evolved over time too. I would say 15 years ago, the concept of a mica bubble was actually a positive thing on campus. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, you could actually go out in the city and come back. It's like safe around here. Mm-hmm. Um, and now if you say my- mica bubble, it's like people say, ew, you know, this is like such <laughs> yeah, a terrible no, concept. It's, not a, it's like, concept, yeah. not a good concept, not a good concept. So I think education really has to be both, you know, classroom based and experiential. And it really has to have kind of real connection with people built in 
into it as well. So we really cannot imagine like a responsible art and design education nowadays without our students knowing their own responsibility vis-a-vis -vis mm -hmm. the context in which they exist, the city in which they live. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really important for us to embed these kind of experiential learning for students uh, and not just take advantage of the city, but genuine in the city to show who they are, to learn who are their partners and their community members, mm -hmm. you know, in the city. And, you know, MICA nowadays is actually highly national, international. 80% of our students actually are from other states and other country. Uh -huh. So many of them actually come to us because we have told the Baltimore story correctly, sure. uh, chosen to come to MICA because they've chosen to come to Baltimore as well. Uh, so we have a lot of um, both kind of curricular and co-curricular vehicles to connect our students to the city. Uh, so for example, we have a center for creative citizenship um, mm -hmm. that have grants and um, internship opportunities for students to work with agencies, nonprofits, or with neighborhoods. And uh, we have a program, as you mentioned, you know, MFA in community arts. Mm -hmm. We have um, also a center for social design, MA degree in social design that takes design thinking into the city. And one of their commitment is to identify kind of social issues Mm -hmm. but co-design with the communities and the populations that we serve uh, or, or together so that it's not like a top-down say, oh, I know you know how to bring solutions to the neighborhood, mm -hmm. but really go in the neighborhood to identify the issues together mm -hmm. uh, and then actually co-designing solutions together. So that's actually, um, uh, Micah has a lot of um, activities and programs in that of the nature going on right now. Mm -hmm. Well, it feels like that's the only thing that will ever work, right? That's the only thing that will work. Tell people how to do yeah. something. It doesn't. You right. have to collaborate. Absolutely. Yeah, we know that, but mm -hmm. actually, the, the machine and the systems that are in place doesn't know that fully yet at yeah, this no, time. So they're not yeah. de necessarily designed for that. So it really is that, kind of innovative correct. thinking, yeah. um, and it all makes sense. Right. Exactly. And I think in July 2019, which is very recent, um, there was a wonderful uh, new national report that was um, commissioned by the Kresge Foundation, mm -hmm. an issue by the um, Initiative for or competitive inner cities, ICIC. And it basically examined arts and cultures and cores in urban cities throughout the United States that use arts and designs and, again, creative placemaking uh, to bring equitable economic and other development to underserved communities. Mm -hmm. And it interviewed and surveyed um, a lot of organizations, a lot of initiatives, and it highlighted four of what they call robust practitioners. And only one of them was a um, art school and high education, that's MICA. So so I think um, to, for the kind of third party, national third party to look at Baltimore and identify mm -hmm. you know, MICA's practice as an example for the nation, tells a really great story, not just about MICA, but about Baltimore too. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like other anchor institutions in the city of Baltimore can help support the arts and the arts community? Um, I think by realizing if we want holistic solutions, we have to look at like all aspects of wellness and all aspects of um, kind of empowerment uh, and coming to and be partners. Uh, so, uh, for example, the city of Baltimore actually has a group of anchor institutions that identifies at the ads and meds. So like 12 of them, they were formed about maybe six or seven years ago. Mm -hmm. We still convene from time to time with, you know, different mayors. And so Mayor Young is going to call one group uh, meeting together, I think, uh, later next month. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so I think the, um, the the partnership really looks at each other's different assets and different partnerships and see how we can work together. Uh, so I think that would be, you know, one way to um, just um, have, you know, common understanding and figuring out where we can use our different expertise and different perspective and different resources to help events, you know, the, the city. But 
ultimately, it's not just about the larger institutions working together. We really have to have um, you know, the government, the business, and um, the different sectors kind of working together. And I think recognizing that the creative players and um, you know, and organizations like the Greater Baltimore for Cultural Alliance and all its members really need to be critical you know, partners in, again, kind of improving the city is key. I think Baltimore, one of the issues of Baltimore is that we are pretty fragmented as a Absolutely. as a city. And right now we have a lot of wonderful networks. They circulate and they intersect from time to time, mm -hmm. but there is not yet a mechanism to ensure the kind of true one directional kind of teamwork for Baltimore that has the sum be larger than the parts. So we have a lot of wonderful parts right now. Mm -hmm. And I think the arts can actually hopefully play a, play a role in actually helping to provide that co coalition. Mm -hmm. I want to wrap up by looking at how the arts have been sort of traditionally viewed in America versus the way they're looked at in the rest of the world. In America, in elementary schools, they're cutting music classes, they're cutting art classes, whereas in the rest of the world, arts are really viewed as indispensable, as things that are absolutely necessary. Do you feel like there's a shift going on in America where arts are being viewed as more important, or do you hope? What would you hope? I, I hope. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's a shift yet. Um, mm -hmm. There was a very interesting study uh, that was done about 15 years ago now uh, that measured public perception, and which includes actually governmental perception too. And the finding was kind of like very illogical, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's that 97 or some around there, a vast majority of Americans consume and enjoy the arts, but only 27 would support artists. And it so it, that that kind of like gap in under, disconnect uh, understanding is just unfathomable mm -hmm. in uh, you know in other, you know other countries. But that that is true, and I think that study was repeated uh, maybe five years ago, and we didn't shift that much. That's why I remain hopeful. But mm -hmm. I think that we still have a lot a long distance to to travel here in this country. But um, yes, but you're absolutely right about other countries have like Ministry of Culture, um, you know Singapore, you know Britain in its better days <laughs> right now. <laughs> I was not enjoying one of his better days. Uh, you know, have really a um, kind of a, a creative, you know, England and that kind of, mm -hmm. you know, strategy that look at the arts um, as a, a kind of economic, you know, development vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that one day I think the United States can do that. But maybe starting from that, like the, actually State of Maryland has been very supportive of the arts and, and of education. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can start with the State of Maryland sure. and we can be a leader in that and then we can provide a national model. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like if there was this reverence for the arts in America that so many different things could change with that. I absolutely, I absolutely believe that. Mm -hmm. Well, we can be the start, right? Yes, we can be the star. Absolutely. Sammy Hoy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you us. so much. The Free to Be More podcast will be right back. And stay tuned to the end of the podcast for a bonus segment on the Pratt's new interactive exhibit, Undesign the Red Line. Get help navigating the tech world with free computer classes at the Pratt. We've got something for all levels, from email basics to advanced Excel. Classes available at Pratt locations across Baltimore City. Details at prattlibrary.org. You're free to be more at the Pratt. Trent Hall joins us for this bonus segment of the Free to Be More podcast. He was a guide for the Undesign the Red Line exhibit when it visited Howard County. Trent, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, no problem. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, Appreciate so it. Tell me. What is Undesign the Red Line? What can people expect? What is this exhibit? Uh, oof. Very, very, very <laughs> heavy. Um, so I'll try to kind of distill it down. Mm -hmm. But the Undesign the Red Line exhibit is an interactive exhibit. 
Um, it's kind of an installation, so it's traveled around. It has information, experiences from a lot of different places and a lot of different people. But it deliberately focuses on institutional racism and um, specifically redlining as a practice, which in a lot of different cities, almost all major cities within the United States, um, was a practice where race was basically created as the context of how we were going to decide your livelihood, what access you had to resources. Um, and there were maps created for this, and there were strategies created around this to actually create and perpetuate it. Um, so this exhibit breaks that down, which is really heavy, but it's very interactive. Um, you can take your time on it. You can get a guided tour. It's pretty cool. Yeah. When it was in Howard County, what was the reaction from people that came and were able to experience this? Um, there was a range of of emotions and uh, expressing those emotions. But the main thing that was important is people were intrigued and wanted to know more. And there was a lot of information that people got that it just deliberately lets you know that we've been lied to in a lot of spaces in history. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people kind of challenged that. And, and the part about this exhibit that's really cool is if you don't believe something, you can look it up, mm-hmm. which causes people to actually find out more information and to figure out more about our history that we kind of want to cover up. We put a lot of Band-Aids on broken limbs. People sometimes have visceral, like, sad emotions, like crying. Sure. Some people are kind of angry Mm -hmm. because they don't understand why they haven't been taught certain things or why. Or they're angry at themselves because they didn't know something and they might have had an experience where they recognized they were wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, That usually came in, like, uh, the debriefing sessions after. But those are really cool also. So, like... Having the ability to talk about this with people who also are on the tour is really important, even if it's just whoever you're going with, because more information just comes out. Yeah, it says that it's interactive. So what parts of it are interactive? Ah, so there is like certain panels, like it's essentially like, um, well, if you all have the same one that we had, it's like four or five different sides. Each side corresponds to something different. So the first side has like the very beginning stories of how redlining started as a practice with like mm-hmm. the very first map in, uh, I believe it's the Bronx in New York. Mm-hmm. And then there's another side that's deliberately focused on whatever the local space is. That is really interactive because there's different panels that you can take off and like look at oh. with you. Um, there is an interactive map of Baltimore, like the redlining map of Baltimore, wow. where you can also put like different pins on where you live, where you used to live. You can put different cards and post-it notes on like stories that you've had with like experience of housing um on it already are a lot of stories like i said it travels a lot so there are stories from other people like uh who have been through this process because we are still living with people who have vivid memories of this um and it also still happens in a different way now um but that's a different story (laughs) um and there's also a board that deliberately focuses on finding solution um, I think that one's the most interactive. So mm-hmm. there's a, a portion that kind of has things that cities have done to actually combat these. Um, there are things that haven't worked. There are things that are starting to work. And there are things that have been proven statistically to work, which is really interesting depending on, um, and it all depends on, you know, your environment, the community, the different a- access to resources that you do have or don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like this kind of like sparks conversations that might be difficult to have? Yes, 100%. It sparks conversations with people who are already critically thinking about this, which we all are. We Mm -hmm. all experience race, whether we are aware of it or not. And this gives us the ability to talk about the things that are uncomfortable to talk about that we're already thinking about, Mm -hmm. but we just don't usually have the space to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And even if you aren't taking the space, if you go on this exhibit, it at least gives you more context for your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. 
What is the difference? Um, can you still get a lot of that out of the self-guided tour if you are able to go yourself rather than go with a group? Yes. It depends on your personality. Sure. So, um, you just have to be open to it. Yeah. If you, It's a lot. It's very dense. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of words. So for someone like me, um, I'm dyslexic. Mm-hmm. And so if I look at words for long periods of time, they start to jumble sure. a little bit. Um, and I might not retain as much information as I could if I'm hearing it auditorily. So having someone speak to certain things definitely helps. Mm -hmm. Um, But also a guided tour, say you do a 30-minute, 40-minute tour, there's literally, you could spend an entire month on this exhibit, like breaking (laughs) it down. So you're not getting everything. So Mm -hmm. there are things that you're going to get from doing the self-guided tour and doing the guided tour a little differently. Sure. You called it life-changing. Did you see that in the people that came to visit it in Howard County and in what ways? Yes. There was a couple of, like, groups that I did, like guided tours with groups, either realtors or, um, like, different student groups Mm -hmm. would mostly come. And as a result of, like, realtor company coming, re-looking at practices in the way that they talk to people because they weren't aware of like certain coded or dog whistle language. Sure. Literally a lack of awareness creating to perpetuate a system that no one intends to. Mm-hmm. And there are like some deliberate things that are being done, but having an awareness of something allows you to react differently to it. Mm-hmm. So in that space, to me, that means that people are having more access to homes and they're not being put into this system where they actually can't live where they want to live and have access to like good schools and stuff that they want to have. Um, with students, they created like different task force or conversation like um, groups, like student voice groups that are going to start talking about these. Um, there's a group that I'm a part of called Youth in Conversation that has a podcast. And one of the things that they did for the beginning of that podcast was basically like going on this guided tour, finding ways to bring more students to the conversation and then training to have like uh, dialogue skills so that they could have those conversations in their respective schools. Because they all don't go to the same school. Yeah. Wow. That is really powerful. Only a couple. There's there's only a couple of things. There's sure. a lot of stuff that happened, I'm sure, that I'm not aware of. But yeah, it's it's hard to just sit in silence when you actually have an awareness of something. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people dif- move and start doing things differently. Yeah. Why do you feel like it's so important for this exhibit to be on display in Baltimore City, particularly? Hmm. Because redlining is... Like, the history of redlining really started in Baltimore, like, honestly. So we're talking about a system that when you look around you and you see the difference of, like, going two streets one way and two streets the other way, like, Mm -hmm. infrastructure-wise, housing, um, what types of stores are there, the type of people, um, our thoughts about those people, this exhibit essentially tells you where that started, and it was designed that way. Mm -hmm. Um, It allows you to not victim blame or blame targeted groups for situations that they were put into and that were perpetuated around them. Um, And I don't know, it it takes a little bit of a burden off your back, I feel, because it gives you an awareness of what's really going on. It doesn't make you feel crazy or guilty for thinking certain things because now you have context to think more clearly. Mm -hmm. And there is that ending part of trying to come up with solutions. So there has to be some sort of positivity at the end of it. Exactly. And I think that there are multiple things that people do inherently that they're not aware that actually do combat the processes of redlining, Mm -hmm. but like keep saying the word awareness, but seriously, having an awareness allows you to have intentionality behind something. Mm -hmm. And intentionality is a lot more powerful than just operating on your natural ability, even though natural ability is strong. Once you sharpen it, you figure out where you need to put certain things, what people you need to have in certain positions, Mm -hmm. what programs need to be where. Um, It's a very powerful thing. Mm -hmm. 
Undesign the Red Line is on display at the Pratt Central Library from November 1st to January 31st. Tran Hall, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.